Please join me in the scriptures if you have your Bibles with you or if you're using your phones uh, or if you're using the Pew Bible, please join me in the book of Malachi. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 801. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, and so if you need help finding it, you can flip to the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament and then just flip back a couple of pages until you get there. The book of Malachi, as I think we'll all discover in the next several weeks together, the book of Malachi is kind of an overlooked gem in the Old Testament, and I'm really excited for us to study it together because, as, uh, as Elder Daynert has already said, it is incredibly relevant to the struggles that God's people have today. Malachi is all about God's unchanging love. And that unchanging love then encounters and ministers to a people who are plagued by disillusionment and disappointment. I've entitled the series that we'll be going through in Malachi, God's Love for Questioning People. Because Malachi is structured around six distinct questions that arise from the people's hearts as God is pursuing them. So each week we'll be looking at one of these questions, and the more that I've read Malachi, the more stunned I am at how contemporary these questions sound. Their struggles back then are so similar to our own, especially when we look at today's question, the question about God's love. I am personally convinced that this is one of the most pressing pastoral needs that face us today. It is believing God's love. So much of our doubt, so much of our anger, so much of our crisis of identity or of our despondency in life and our loneliness and questing about for meaning, so much of that comes from doubting God's love. In the TV show, The West Wing, uh, hopefully some of you have seen it, there's this one scene early in the season. The president's right-hand man, Leo McGarry, returns home after a long day at work, and he finds a present from his wife waiting for him. He opens it up, he has the surprised look on his face, and he sees that it's a very nice watch. He says to her, thank you, and, he sa- and she says, Happy anniversary. And then you see the dawning realization on his face. He had been so busy that he had forgotten this very important day. And in that moment, and as you see him and as you see her, especially her, you see a ton of disappointment as she sees the the pain of their relationship beginning to unravel. See, when, our, when we feel like in our life experience that love is not backed up by action, one of the first things that we do is ask the question, do you really love me? You say that you love me, but do you really love me? Malachi chapter 1 begins with this question, do you really love us, O oh God? And maybe you've asked that before in your own life. Uh, maybe even today you're asking that as we come to worship together. It's a scary thought that God might not 
love us. But thankfully, God is ready to answer that question for us this morning. God wants to move us from doubt and disappointment to joy through a message of his enduring love. And so, with that in mind, brothers and sisters, please hear now God's holy word. This is God's word for you, and my prayer is that you would hear the Lord ministering to you and speaking his love to you personally, even as we hear his word to us. This is God's holy word. Malachi chapter 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins... The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Thus far in the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. O oh Lord, as we are confronted with this wonderful message of love, I pray that you, through your spirit, would minister to us uh, in the, the hidden places of our heart where we harbor uh, even little doubts about you and your goodness and your kindness. I pray that you would meet us now, speak to us. Please, through your spirit, empower this word, illumine your word to us for our salvation and for our conversion and our growth in holiness and confidence and even joy. We pray in the name of Christ, amen. So the question of love really jumps off the page, doesn't it? When we read Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, I bet that you could hand this passage to someone who has never even read the Bible before. And if you said, hey, what's this about? The person would probably say, well, I'm not quite sure about all of the details in the text, but one thing is sure, this is a conversation about love. And that is absolutely right. God is wanting to have a conversation with us today about his love, that this message of love would move us from doubt and disappointment over to joy. And the first thing that he does in this message and ministry of love is deal honestly with our unbelief. God's love exposes our unbelief. God's love is an absolutely central theme in the book of Malachi. One scholar even says that Malachi is God's valentine to his people. But as you probably know from life experience, valentines are not always encouraging if you are already suspicious. When I was in middle school, I was not the most popular kid in class. 
Uh, I was pretty unpopular, as a matter of fact, but every year, one day of the year, on Valentine's Day, I would get Valentine's from all of my classmates saying all kinds of cheery phrases. You're the best. XOXO, uh, you know, all of these kind of great lines, but because I was overlooked most of the rest of the year, I didn't really receive these with a ton of encouragement. No, what these Valentines did was just kind of confirm some of the suspicions that I already had. My experience of my classmates made me skeptical when I received these Valentines. And similarly, in our text, when God says, I love you, what it does is reveal a hidden unbelief in the hearts of the people. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And you should read verse 2 with that tone of voice in mind. The people are doubting. They are really skeptical. How have you loved us? In other words, do you really love us? Why would they say that? What's going on in this passage? Well, here's the background to, uh, to the book of Malachi. These people had endured years of humiliation in their exile in Babylon. And when that exile ended, they returned to the land, but what they found was that their fields had been wrecked. Their temple was destroyed. All of the cities were in ruins. The people that came back, the population was just a fraction of the size that it had been before. And in this this great field of discouragement, they had slumped into spiritual lethargy. And so the prophets, God sent prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, two of the prophets that are right before the book of Malachi. And what these prophets did was call the people to action with great and grand promises from God. God said, rebuild the temple. Don't rebuild your houses, rebuild my house. Build the temple and I will fill it with glory. I will shake the nations and the treasures of the nations shall come into it. And the people had responded. They had faith. They built the temple. But then nothing seemed to change. Instead of being chief of the nations, they were merely pawns being tugged between the other leaders of the foreign nations and their political power play within the region. The foreign leaders at that time would only support Israel if they felt like it was politically expedient. And so the people were constantly depending on these political rulers to give them favor so that they would support the temple complex. And the priests at that time were tempted to try and curry favor with these leaders and try to get more money. And all of the time, their people are suffering. Again, they are pulled between fear and servitude or destitution and, uh, and complete abandonment. It is a bleak picture that the people of Malachi are experiencing, and in the back of their mind, they're thinking, what about all of those wonderful promises that you gave us through the prophets? And so the people began to lose faith. When God says, I love you, they respond with skepticism. Have you ever felt that way before? Let's be honest. Whenever life goes sideways, it is very easy for us to look at God and kind of point the finger at God and say, I thought you loved me. 
I thought you loved me. Why would you allow this to happen? I remember once I was on a ministry trip, and I had to preach. There were a number of responsibilities that I had to do, and the night before the first sermon, I had a terrible night of sleep. Has this ever happened to you? You have some big thing and you have a terrible night of sleep. And so all night long, I'm tossing and turning. And as the hours just go on and on and on, the pressure is building in my own heart. I kind of go from dejection to a little bit of frustration all the way over to outright anger. I was mad and I was mad at God. My prayers were, they're kind of embarrassing with the things that were kind of coming up in my heart and in my, my mind. I was kind of hissing things at God, stuff like, I need to preach tomorrow. Look at how I'm trying to serve you, God. How could you do this to me? How is this love? And I'm, I'm sure that we've all felt like that in one situation or another. And it's tempting for us to immediately rush to try and resolve that tension. Now, there is an answer God has for us this morning. But before we resolve the tension, I just want us to notice God's grace to us even here. God is not afraid of our unbelief. He initiated this discussion, right? God is the one who pursued the people. God is the one who said, I love you, so that their unbelief could be revealed, so that he could deal with it. God is not afraid of our unbelief. He knows what's deep in our hearts, and he draws near to us anyway. He's like a loving parent who's pulling a child close in an embrace even while the child is trying to squirm away from God's embrace. He pursues them anyway. This is a conversation that God wants to have. The people are disenchanted. They are doubting, but God wants to have this conversation with them. His love exposes the unbelief that tries to keep him at arm's length. So God loves us. His love exposes our unbelief. But he loves us too much to just leave us there in our unbelief. God corrects our unbelief by showing us what we should really care about. God's love reorders our desires. The people ask in our passage, how have you loved us? And God responds, didn't I choose Jacob? And didn't I reject Esau? Now, at first glance, that is a very strange answer, right? How is that supposed to make us feel any better? It feels like God is kind of changing the subject unless we pay attention to what he's doing. He is gently naming the source of their unbelief. It is their disordered desires that causes them to doubt God's love. God is saying, you are paying attention to the wrong thing. See, our first desire in life tends to be uh, getting earthly blessings as much as possible. And first, before anything else, we want earthly blessings. And if we get spiritual blessings, it's kind of like a bonus. But God, in God's mind, God says that the primary blessing that we should desire is the spiritual blessing of knowing him. That is what our salvation is really about. And so God calls out our disordered desires and corrects them with his great love. 
Here's how it plays out in the text. The people are bitter because they have God's promises ringing in their ears, but as they look around at their circumstances, they don't see the earthly glory that they felt like they were supposed to have. And so God reminds them what is most important. It's his electing love. How do I love you, God says? I chose you to be my people. The story that Malachi references here, that God references, this story of Jacob and Esau, it's all the way back in the book of Genesis. And this story is ultimately about the extreme privilege of knowing God, of being his people. There were two sons. You know the story, two sons, Jacob and Esau, and God chose to bless the one and not the other, Jacob is chosen. Jacob is blessed, not Esau. Now, God did allow Esau to have some land, the land of Edom, uh, Israel's next door neighbor. That's what we hear about in the text. That's where Esau and Edom hang together. His people lived there. God gave them that land, but Jacob got to see God face to face. Jacob got to be the privileged son. Now, this is a challenging message for us, but what it points to is the greater blessing. That's why God brings it up here. It's not about the land. It's not about the glory of the nations. It's about the privilege of having access to God. That's the greater blessing, and that's why God brings it up here. The people are grumbling over their circumstances, but God said, remember what is most important. You have me. Friends, we cannot afford to forget the extreme blessing of being chosen as God's people. It is the highest blessing we could ask for. Paul says in Ephesians 1, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Christians, you are chosen You're chosen, not because you were more holy or because you were better or smarter than anybody else. God chose you before the foundation of the world because he loves you. He loves you that much. Yes, your world may have gone sideways. Yes, you might be suffering from job challenges or physical pains or relational distress. All of that may be true, but you have God. You have God. Don't mistake the main blessing of salvation. It's not about earthly blessings now. It's about being with God. Now, of course, God is happy to give us earthly blessings, but that's just because he's that good. He is so good that on top of giving us himself, he gives us all of the good things we can enjoy, but our main desire, our main hope in salvation is that we have God. God chose us. God chose you to be his people. You might wonder, how do I know that that's true? How do I know that that's true, especially in times of trial? See, we are so used to judging God's faithfulness based on our earthly blessings that when those blessings disappear or we experience trial, we're not always sure how to assess God's faithfulness or God's love. Well, just remember what he says in the text. God 
always accompanies his promises with a sign. God confirms his covenant promises with a sign. In this passage, the people are given a sign of judgment. How do they know that God chose them to be his people? God says, compare your destiny with the destiny of the people whom I've rejected. I tore Edom down and they will never recover from my judgment, says the Lord. That's what verse 4 is pointing to. And as we look at history, that is exactly what happened. Shortly after the Babylonians took the people of Judah away in exile, at some point in time after that, they came and they destroyed the land of Edom. Those people were dispersed. Those people were taken away into exile, but they never recovered. The people of Edom never came back into the land. And so there is a big difference in this text between God's discipline of Israel and his utter judgment of Edom. And God says, pay attention to that. It's it's kind of like he's saying, how do you know I chose you? Well, you're back in the land. And look at Edom. They are nowhere to be seen. That's how you know that I've chosen you. That was the sign that confirmed God's election of Israel. And so what's the sign for us? What is the sign that confirms our election? Well, it's also a sign of judgment. It's the cross. But the judgment didn't fall on us. God poured his wrath out on Jesus so that we could become the people of God. How do you know that God loves you? How do you know that you are chosen to receive the blessing of salvation? Well, look and see. It's Christ crucified for you. It's Christ risen from the dead for you. And when we look at that sign, when we think about the cross of Christ as the sign of our confirmation of our salvation, it is pretty hard to complain about our earthly circumstances, isn't it? When we see exactly how much God loves us, And when we grasp the extreme privilege of knowing that love, our desires begin to change. We become less fixated on earthly blessings, and we begin to crave the spiritual blessing of Christ. We can say with the Apostle Paul, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That is a far better foundation for joy than merely earthly comfort. This is God's covenantal, electing, redeeming, never-ending love. God's love reorders our desires. And then finally, God's love inspires our worship. God's love inspires our worship. When we focus on this amazing love, our hearts are filled with awe at his power and grace. Verse 5, your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. God's judgment on Edom was meant to turn the people's skepticism into awe. They would see God's amazing power on display, far from some passive regional deity who was unable to keep his promises, who was bullied around by the other big global superpowers like they feared. God is the Lord of hosts. 
He is the Lord of heavenly armies. That's what the Lord of hosts means. He's the God of heavenly armies, and he has the power to depose foreign leaders. He has the power to destroy foreign lands. He is great, even beyond the border of Israel. So what power the people would see. What power and what amazing grace, because this powerful God was their God. He was for them. And that is an amazing thing when a God this powerful is also for you. In the early 1990s, there was a cereal box competition for kids. And I've tried to look this up and I couldn't find it. I think it was Wheaties. I think it was Wheaties. If you know, please come and talk to me. So it was this uh, cereal box competition for kids. You could enter into it. And if you won, you got to spend the day with an NBA star. And here's how they featured it on the commercial. There was this tiny little boy going to his elementary school and accompanying this tiny boy was his buddy for the day, seven foot tall, 240 pound Patrick Ewing. And everyone in the school was amazed at Patrick Ewing. He was huge compared to everyone else, the teachers, but even especially the kids. And it was this amazing boost of confidence for this young boy. Not just because he was accompanied by a huge man. It wasn't just because Patrick Ewing was gigantic, but that Patrick Ewing was with him. Isn't that every kid's dream? To have some amazing, huge, powerful person befriend you? And that dream, that longing that we all have, it's fulfilled in Jesus. God, this great God of power is your God. You have the spirit of the most high God in you. As 1 John 4, 4 says, he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. In other words, in the struggle the cosmic struggle between God and Satan, you have the far more powerful ally. We are like the kid in that commercial, going to school with a grand and powerful friend. We have the triune God who is with us at all times and all places. The Father, the Son, the Spirit is with you. How can we not rejoice in that God's love, the message of God's love moves us from disappointment and doubt to joy. And so, brothers, sisters, let's ask the question again, does God really love us? Does God really love us? Yes. Yes, he does. Just think about it. We are like the reluctant children who are resisting him, pushing against his embrace. We blame him for all of the pain that we face. We say to him, you did this to us. I thought that you loved us and God pursues us. God pursues us over and over again saying, I have always loved you. I have loved you since before the beginning of the world. I chose you to be my people. I brought you to myself in love. I sent my son to die for you, to redeem you, and I raised him from the dead so that you could be with me forever. I am coming back for you, to rescue you, and I am fighting for you even now. That is how much God loves us. And when we are disillusioned, when we're in pain, 
When we are doubting or discouraged, we need this message of love. God's love exposes our unbelief that sours our relationship with him. God's love reorders our desires so that we value our relationship with him above anything else. And God's love inspires our worship so that our weary, skeptical hearts can finally rejoice even when it feels like everything around you is crumbling, even in disaster, even in pain, God's love is clear. Does God really love you? Absolutely. So then the only other question we should ask is this, do you really love God? Do you really love God? See, if the problem isn't God's love for us, then it must be our love for him. And that can be a shocking realization, especially if you've walked in the faith for quite some time. If you've walked in the faith for quite some time, it's a humbling reality or realization to to come to terms with the fact that perhaps your spiritual despondency, that spiritual funk that you've been in, is because your love for God grew cold. Well, that's exactly what happened to me. I've had that before. Uh, At least once in my life, I can remember during my junior year of college, the first half of that year, I just was in a very bad spiritual place. And a lot of it was because of this. I had spent the summer working at a Christian summer camp. And even though I had been doing ministry, my love for God during that time grew distant. I was in a place at that point in time that prized theological skepticism, constantly questioning everything that we thought or knew about God. And that unbelief, habitual unbelief, killed my joy The summer had been stressful and challenging, and my desire for earthly comfort eventually overcame my desire for Christ, and I gave in to grumbling and bitterness and complaining, and that disordered desire killed my joy. The summer camp started on a Sunday. So Sunday for us was a work day. We went the entire summer without corporate worship on Sundays. And that lack of worship killed my joy. And so in the midst of all of my self-imposed spiritual numbness, it was easy for me, and I kind of had the audacity to sit back and ponder quietly, I wonder if God actually really loves me, when really the question was meant to be the other way around. Did I love God? What had happened to my love for Christ? And maybe you've been in a season like this recently. Maybe in the midst of the pandemic, you have found yourself doubting God's goodness. Maybe you're discouraged at the way that your life has taken turns. Uh, You know, we all generally start out with high hopes. Uh, So many of us have dreams and goals. And as you look back on your life, maybe you find that those didn't, uh, didn't come to place or didn't turn out the way you had hoped for. Maybe you've had some major crisis in your life. Or maybe you've just been suffering from a thousand disappointments. But whatever it is for you, it is startlingly easy to lose our first love for God. And if that's you this morning, brother, sister, take comfort. Because God still loves you. God still loves you. And God's love can rekindle your love 
for him. And so let God's love expose your unbelief. Let God's love expose your unbelief. Confess your struggle to believe. Tell God all the things that occupy your mind. You can confess to him maybe worldliness or infatuation with other things. You can admit to God all of the distractions that are clouding your vision. Let God's love expose your unbelief. And then let God's love reorder your desires. Intentionally immerse yourself in God's great work of deliverance. My advice for every single one of you this week is to gorge yourself spiritually through the word on the good news of your salvation. Read all of the great passages this week about how you are saved and how much God loves you. Just take all of that in. You can follow the example of one of my college mentors. He began every prayer, every prayer, whether it was like a big grand prayer in church or a simple prayer before a lunch, he would begin every prayer, God, we thank you for choosing us in Christ. What a privilege it is to be your people. Let God's love rekindle your love. Let it reorder your desires, turning your attention from your circumstances to him and his power and his grace. And then finally, let God's love inspire your worship. My challenge for us all this week is for every single one of us to set aside 30 minutes one day this week to worship God, especially if you're feeling spiritually blue. Especially then, you need to worship. So curate your favorite songs and your favorite scriptures. Spend time worshiping God, confessing your sin, reflecting on his grace, proclaiming his wondrous love, and just enjoying his presence. Let God's love, strengthen your love for him. That is how we move from doubt and disappointment to joy. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are simultaneously encouraged and humbled by this great word of love. We thank you that you have loved us, that you have pursued us from the beginning. And what it does is it humbles us. Uh, We are grateful for your grace, and we are sorry for the ways that we have not loved you with our whole hearts. You have called us to love you as a response to your great love, and so often we fall short. Oh Lord, this week I pray that we would take this message uh, not with guilt and condemnation, but with inspiration to love you because you first loved us. Oh God, kindle in us a great and deep abiding love for you that mimics your great love of us. Help us to taste that, especially those who are discouraged this morning. I pray for them. Spirit, you know, you know who is in desperate need of an encounter with your love. And so I pray that you would minister the love of Christ to us. Cause us to love you as you pour your love into our lives and hearts. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.